You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. I hope you all are well. So this week, we are going to talk about something we should all probably be talking about a whole lot more, our bones. We talk a lot about brain health and heart health. We talk a whole lot about our symptoms that grab our attention, like raging hot flashes and soaking night sweats and sleepless nights and joint pain. And all that is super important, and we shouldn't stop talking about it. But we absolutely should be talking about our bone health with the same breath. Because menopause is a precarious time for bone health, and osteoporosis is a silent condition. Women can lose up to 20% of their spinal bone mass through the menopause transition. 35 to 50% of women, depending on race, have low bone mass by age 50. Your lifetime risk of having a hip fracture is higher than breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and uterine cancer combined. And 30% of women will die within a year of having a hip fracture. The standard recommendation given all of this, is still to get your bone density scanned when you're 65. F that. If we want to stay strong and active for the at least 30% of our lives that we can live post-menopause, we need to stay on top of our skeletal health. So this week, I sat down with osteoporosis and menopause expert, Dr. Christy DeSapri, and we talk all about it. She is the founding physician and owner of Bone and Body Women's Health, which is a specialized midlife women's health practice that is focused on consultation and management of perimenopause, menopause, osteoporosis, and fracture prevention and treatment. We talked how to build bone. We talked about how we lose bone and the measures we can take to keep our skeleton strong through and beyond the menopause transition, which again is really a precarious time for skeletal health. We cover a ton of ground here, So stay tuned at the end of this. I summarize the conversation with some action items at the bottom of this conversation. I will also note that the new weight loss drugs like Ozempic are becoming a very important part of this conversation because of their potential to impact negatively on bone and muscle. Um, I'm putting together a separate conversation on those drugs that'll come out in the new year, but it's really something we need to be paying attention to. Okay, before we get to it, As always, check us out and give us a follow at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. Sign up for my free weekly newsletter at feistymenopause.com. And if you like the show, kindly head on over to Apple and give us a positive rating and review. I have some really incredible guests coming up and it helps keep them coming. Finally, a very quick thanks. To Aura Ring, which I'm excited about, has come on as a sponsor through the end of the year. If you've listened for any length of time, you know I am an Aura Ring early adopter. I love my Aura Ring, and I have had on plenty of guests, including sleep experts who rave about theirs as well. So you can get 10% off an Aura Ring at auraring.com slash feisty. That will be in the show notes. You can just click on it. Makes it easy. I just wanted to say thanks, Aura Ring. I've been Um, a big fan for a long time. (laughs) Okay, enough of me. Let's have a few words about our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. 
I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like feisty menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Okay, Christy. Well, we just had a nice conversation before I hit record and we are all warmed up for this. And I am very grateful that you reached out to me to have this conversation on bone health because I've done one show on it and it was a, it was a solid show. But now that I'm three years into this and have learned quite a bit myself, I have even more questions, as is often the case when you start down a path, you get more questions and answers. So thank you for being here, first and foremost. Thank you, Celine. I love your podcast. I love your guests. I feel honored to be here too. Oh, excellent. So the first thing I want to talk about, because it makes me insane, is, and, and I know your focus is on screening and prevention and treatment of osteoporosis. Why in the name of all that is holy on God's green earth, do we recommend bone density screening at 65 years old? Like everything that I've learned, I'm like, why we are we waiting that long? Yes, you are right. And you're right that we have sometimes more questions that we have answers. But for this one, you know, I have to say the medical guidelines are a little bit antiquated when we look at the internal medicine guidelines. You know, I'm a physician, I'm an internist, but I've practiced a hybrid of internal medicine and gynecology for, you know, since my start of my career, since my fellowship. And, you know, so I sort of straddle both worlds of OBGYN and internal medicine. And unfortunately, the you know, the, in the internal medicine guidelines are a little antiquated. Um, they recommend screening bone density starting at age 65, which again is corresponds with Medicare age as well, uh, which I think that there's no uh, surprise there. Um, but for many women and particularly the menopause society, which were both active members and we were at the exciting conference recently, as well as the American College of OBGYN, really say that, that we need to take a more risk-based assessment approach, whereas we need to do a fracture risk assessment that could include just a couple questions about your fracture risk or could include a screening bone mineral density, which I also shout from the hills is a low radiation, a very simple, easy test that scans both your hip and your spine and sometimes your forearm to assess your bone mineral density, and which is the best surrogate marker we have for bone strength. And that really should be done. That fracture risk assessment should be done at the time of menopause if you have risk factors for bone loss. And guess what? Risk factors for bone loss include aging, being a female, um, being a cisgender female, I should say, uh, having a family history of osteoporosis, age at menopause. So many women have early surgical menopause or early menopause, just earlier than the standard age of you know, 51 and a half in this country. There's so many other risk factors like medications, uh, things like steroid use, aromatase inhibitors, proton pump inhibitors, things like medicate uh, medical history, things like diabetes, type one and type two, patients with thyroid disease, parathyroid disease, 
um, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune conditions like lupus. These are things that actually affect more women than men and actually affect more women, you know, both at the time of menopause, we see a lot of uptick in autoimmune conditions. So those are risk factors, um, surgical conditions like malabsorptive things, like if you've had any gastric bypass surgery, or we don't think you're absorbing calcium and vitamin D well. So oftentimes it really when you, you know, at menopause, we should, or a midlife, I should say, we really need to take an assessment of what is your reproductive history? What's your medical history, your medications and your family history to determine your fracture risk? Because we know that so much bone is, you know, made through our twenties and thirties. We hit a peak bone mass around our twenties and thirties. We kind of hang out there for many women in, in the perimenopause time. And then at menopause, this is why age at menopause is such an important risk factor. We start to lose bone. So I know that's a long answer to your question, but the reality is screening is happening way too late. We can do screening without a DEXA. We can do a fracture risk assessment and just a thought about bone health. It would be better than, uh, than nothing that we're doing currently. A hundred percent. So I have just a couple of follow-ups. So the I'm hearing that the fracture risk risk assessment is sort of like a clinical diagnosis where you're asking a lot of questions, but there was also like, um, is there a device in there where you can get those other bone mineral densities that you talked about? What is that? Exactly. So a fracture risk assessment is actually a freely accessible tool. We have a lot of risk calculators and they answer questions that I just sort of said, putting your age, your weight, your age at menopause, family history, medical things in, into sort of a diagnostic criteria of what is your risk of a 10 year risk of a hip or spine, a hip or major osteoporosis related fracture. fracture you know, risk calculators that can be helpful. I don't think that that's the end all be all. I practice clinical medicine. I like to talk and examine my patients. And so those, you know, we need to put that into the, the mix as well, because we know falls, fracture risk is different than just a one, you know, one size fits all. And then a DEXA scan, which is a dual energy x-ray absorptiometry, which is a basically a glorified x-ray that looks at um, it, it's done in a, you know, a dedicated table and it has a, you know, a, basically a scanner that looks, um, scans your hip as both hips, as well as your spine and sometimes a forearm for your bone mineral density. So it looks at the trabecular components and the cortical components of your long bones, um, as well as your spine, uh, and really looks at what is the density to date. It's an aerial measurement. So it looks at, again, what is the, you know, the actual uh, bones that we're looking at, and then gives us something called a T and a Z score, which are basically standard deviations that we have validated the World Health Organization and the NHANES database to look at what is your density compared to someone of a peak bone mass. That's something we call a T score, which again, a standard deviation that looks at your bone mineral density divided by uh, your the area and something called a Z score, which we use in the pre-menopausal years, where it looks at your bone mineral density compared to someone who's your similar age, race, and sex match. Both are very important. Both tell us some variables about how your bone density is looking compared to age mates, as well as compared to your someone of a peak bone mass. And is DEXA the only machine that you can use for bone mineral density screening? It's a great question. There is some newer technology that's coming out. There's something called the REMS technology, which is relative energy uh, multi-spectrometry, which is uses an ultrasound instead. This is still kind of like in the development phase. It was actually a technology started in Europe. Um, you know, it is an ultrasound, so it has less uh, radiation, although a DEXA scan is one one hundredth of an X-ray and is basically, uh, you know, considered very low level radiation, similar to what you would get on a daily basis walking around. So um, so this might be a technology we might consider. But for now, DEXA is still considered the gold standard for assessment of bone mineral density. Excellent. So let's go back and talk bones in general and just give like a really brief overview of like the whole osteoblast, osteoclast, and why and when we start breaking down more than we're building up. Yes. So yes, bone physiology is very confusing to many people and it, it really doesn't have to be. I mean, we talked a little bit about being peak bone mass and I, how I said, you know, we really build our bone through our twenties and our thirties. And what we're, what we're doing there is that we're actually modeling, we're building new bone, we're laying down new bone. This is, we're mineralizing strong bone. This is why we tell our youths to exercise, to weight, to weight bear. And actually we should continue to do that because that actually stimulates 
bone mineral forming. We know that actually from studying people in space, uh, that they are not forming new bone because they're not doing weight bearing or resistance exercise. Um, when we think about something called remodeling, which is, you know, if you can think about that in your mind, I usually use the analogy of remodeling like your home. Many people know how to uh, can relate to that is remodeling is where we remove old bone and replace it with new bone. And that's how our skeleton, which is, again, a very, you know, very, very important part of, you know, what keeps our body uh, up and moving as well as it protects our internal organs and is a huge reservoir for things like calcium, phosphorus, other minerals um, and essential things for our life and cardiovascular function as well. So when we think about remodeling, we're removing old bone and we do that, you know, constantly through our life, actually 10% of our skeleton remodels um, every year. So in 10 years, your whole skeleton has remodeled. We know things like trabecular bone in our spine remodels more quickly and more um, actively. So when we think about menopause and what happens, you know, the osteoblast, the osteoclast, what's happening at the time of menopause is we're losing estrogen and other sex hormones, but primarily estrogen, which has receptors all over our bone and also joints and other places from our head to toe, from our brain and our gut and our uh, cardiac tissue. And when we remove that estrogen, more bone resorption is happening, more osteoclasts are being sort of recruited and are, and are active because there's less estrogen. And so we're losing more bone than we're making. So it's kind of like, again, you just can't keep up um, with a bone formation. Um, interestingly too, estrogen seems, in, at least in rat studies, to be uh, osteoblastic, meaning it forms helps form new bones. Um, and so we know that again, at menopause, we're not forming enough new bone and we're breaking down more bone. Um, and that really leads to this imbalance of bone uh, being formed. Um, and th thinner, weaker bones. And the definition of osteoporosis and even its precursor of osteopenia is weakening or deterioration of the bone tissue, lower bone density, which increases your risk for fractures. And so um, oftentimes there's a lot of images you can Google some of these images and it shows, helps really show, you know, bring osteoporosis to life because this is a silent condition. You don't walk around saying, Hey, I'm at menopause. I'm breaking down my bones and I'm becoming, you know, thinner boned. You say, Hey, I have hot flashes. Oh my gosh. I have vaginal dryness. I'm having joint pain, but bones are a silent bone loss. And this is something where it's so important to, that's why we're talking about this here, because many women come to me at the time of menopause or even the years after and are shocked about their diagnosis of osteopenia or osteoporosis. But I'm, but we know from this clinical literature and from what we're talking about, this is happening with all of us. And actually, thinner women lose more bone density. And it's um, it's really appreciated that some women can lose up to twenty percent of their bone mass in their in their spine, and up to five to seven percent in their cortical uh, bone mass through the menopause transition. And we absolutely see this. Um, we are studying this actively. We know there's many things we can do to offset the bone loss, which we'll talk about maybe later. But again, it's just important. And this is why you know our understanding of biochemical bones really needs to translate into how we use it in clinical medicine to make sure we're capturing bone loss and talking about bone loss, exercise, calcium, vitamin D, and then assessment of bone density at the time of menopause as we reviewed. Right. And I have a ton of questions and we'll get through them all. But like, um, be before we before we move on to some of that, of you know, like, the prevention and, and what to do and are we all doomed, you know, which I know we're not. Um, we're not. Yes. I'm also interested in this concept of elasticity of bones, which is something that came up, I think, when I talked to Avram Blooming for Estrogen Matters, um, mm -hmm. just understanding that we want our bones to like have a little bit of elasticity, like a tree branch that is bending in the wind as opposed to snapping as soon as a stiff wind hits it. What gives our bones that quality? Yeah. So, right. So we have a lot of different types of bones in our body. We have trabecular bone and cortical bone. A lot of our long bones, when we look at that, you know, we look, when we look at the density is not the only compartment. And particularly when we're looking at fracturists, we understand things like bone geometry, uh, bone elasticity, uh, ability to withstand a sideways uh, fall or force. Um, and then something called trabecular bone score, uh, which has become sort of understood that is, is equally as important or can be equally as important to help us predict fractures is now uh, part of a complementary part of our bone mineral density. That trabecular bone score looks at the bone mineral quality uh, is sort of a surrogate marker for microarchitecture inside the spine. 
looking at things like trabecular number, connectivity, uh, et cetera. And that helps us, number one, to independently predict fracture. Number two, to kind of work with the bone mineral density to help us determine someone's risk of fracture, someone's bone quality. Again, sort of the sort of the softer side of, of bone, if you will, to help us flush out people's fracture risk and really understand, you know, are we moving towards treatment? Do we need to intervene? Or is this someone we could say, okay, yes, look, things look like they're, you know, status quo and, and we can uh, follow on the trajectory. You know, a lot of times when we think about hip fractures, um, which are sort of the, I always say sort of like the end stage of osteoporosis is kind of related, likened to a myocardial infarction or heart attack in cardiovascular. A hip fracture is really, you know, is really the end stage of osteoporosis and hip fractures, 90% of them occur from a sideways fall. And so we think about elasticity of bones, things like um, trying to um, replicate in the lab something called a finite element analysis, where we're trying to ed- replicate uh, a sideways fall uh, and a sideways pressure bend. A lot of our medications, we study this to see if that would help prevent those uh, you know, forces and help prevent a fall. And you're absolutely right. Mineralization or strengthening of the bone and elasticity of the bone is very important. It's very hard to study, except for what I just said, something, you know, in the lab, we really can't like study humans and like push them over and hope that they don't (laughs) fall in fracture. Um, So we do this more in like the laboratory setting. But yes, these components of bone, both mineralization as well as elasticity are very important. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the otter is stuffed with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and otter has taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. Let's talk then about turning the tide a little bit on, on some of this, you know, especially like I mean, what I what I'm understanding so far is that it becomes very clear why it's important to build as much in your bone bank as possible before you hit this place. Right. You know, because then you have more to lose, you know, before you hit the danger area. Right. Is that sort of what I'm understanding? I mean, I absolutely I love the analogy of a bone bank because I think, you know, many of us can understand money. So exactly. I mean, and, and sometimes the bone bank is low because you of genetics and you know, 70% of our bone mass is inherited. So that's why we ask, has, does your parent have a hip, fra- you know, a maternal history of a hip fracture and someone um, under the, if your mom, mother has had a hip fracture in her seventies, that's actually a risk factor for bone loss and fractures as well. We ask about sisters, we ask about brothers. I mean, we know genetics. Genetics is a huge role. Reproductive history. We're going to talk later about things like relative energy deficiency in sport or low energy availability or the female triad, uh, missing your period for more than six months. You know, those things, again, we know that those are can be hallmarks of periods where estrogen was low or deficient. And then that led to less bone being formed or menstrual irregularity. Uh, certain, again, medications. Um, you know, we, we look at pregnancy. It's very interesting, you know, even though that's a period of amenorrhea,
diarrhea, we know, or, you know, lactation, we know that that uh, does absolutely contribute to lower bone mineral density. When we study pregnant or lactating women, actually women can lose up to five to 10% of their bone mass during those periods. But many of that, because again, we're, you know, feeding the, the, the skeleton, you know, the skeleton, uh, the calcium is being uh, absorbed into the placenta and then for the, the growing fetus and skeletal, skeletal skeleton of the fetus, how it's so important again for pregnant and lactating women to obtain enough calcium and, and vitamin D as well. But most women can rebound from that again and improve their calcium vitamin D. There is a subset of women who have pregnancy and uh, induced lactation osteoporosis. Uh, I see some of those people and those are people who have potentially other underlying risk factors for osteoporosis. Um, so again, really important to identify all those things that contribute to peak bone mass, because we know at menopause, yes, you know, some women are, you know, preserved and bone mass is strong and others we've, st we're starting at a lower point. So we have to maintain as much as we can to prevent the, some inevitable bone loss after the two years after the final menstrual period, we know that bone loss slows. I mean, there is some aging and we know women are now living longer, you know, 60% of women are surviving to over 80. Uh, so that's a lot. And so our skeleton has to keep us moving around and, uh, and, and, and functional. So we need to, again, maintain that bone mass as we talked about in the beginning, so we could continue to do that and live well. Let's talk about how let's talk about like, yeah. like, how we how we get there and and what that is i mean when if i'm coming to you um i do not have a, a history of it and i i mountain bike i hit the ground a lot and i seem okay but um can i expect to maintain can i gain you know like what where am i like what once you get through that menopause transition what what can one expect in the best of situations with all the advice that we're going to give them yeah. So let's like, you know, first, like think about statistics. So what's, what's, a, again, what's not surprising, and this is from the CDC and, and, and hates and, and all, and all of our um, assessments is that when we look at bone mineral density and they do a snapshot of people, um, 20 percent of women uh, by the age of 50 would have osteoporosis on a DEXA that might not that does not include women who might have had a low trauma fracture or, or fracture from a standing height or less, which also makes the diagnosis of osteoporosis. But we know these are very much underdiagnosed and even undertreated. Primarily many fractures that happen in women in their 40s and 50s could be stress fractures, which is not necessarily an osteoporosis related fracture, but tells us something about their bones, as well as a radius or a forearm fracture. Very very, very common fractures that are generally treated in like the emergency room, uh, outpatient settings, and then, you know, women are sent on their way and they heal generally okay. But that again is a herald fracture. So if I say 20% of women who are, I should, sorry, caveat, that was 20% of women, it's Caucasian or Asian women who have osteoporosis at age 50 by a DEXA scan, either in their spine or their hip or both. Um, it looks like it's a lower percentage, like five to 10% of African-American women. When we think about osteopenia or low bone mass, it's 50% of women by the time that they are 50 would have low bone mass or osteopenia, which is a T-score in the range of minus 1.1 to minus 2.4. African-American women, Black women, it's about 35% would have low bone mass or osteopenia. So it's a large number of women. And that's basically what I see in my practice. If I see a normal bone density, it's a good day. Um, you know, but I counsel a lot of women regardless. And so, so, and then we think about osteoporosis, we know this is woefully undertreated, actually 80% of women who sustain a, a fracture are treated or diagnosed with osteoporosis after within a year uh, with our, you know, routine pharmacologic therapy. So we have a, a long way to go. You can see the treatment gap as well as the, you know, sort of underappreciation uh, of, of this condition. So when you, when I see women either with osteoporosis or low bone density at the time of menopause, number one, we do a you know, a retrospective look back, which we just talked about. Number two, we think about things like, you know, I always start with, you know, lifestyle and which includes calcium, vitamin D and exercise. And we can maybe take one of those separately. The other thing we've, we, which we talked about and we touched on, and we're both members of the menopause society, which is again, an evidence-based uh, midlife women's health organization that encompasses, you know, gynecologists, internal medicine, subspecialists really on the looks at the uh, treatment of midlife women across the spectrum, both looking at cardiovascular risk, diabetes, uh, uh, metabolic issues, bone health, breast health, hormone health. And really, when we think about women who are coming with bone loss, 70% of those women 
probably have vasomotor symptoms or hot flashes or have signs like genital urinary syndrome of menopause, which is um, vaginal dryness, painful intercourse, recurrent urinary tract infections. And then the other sort of, I call them sort of like the fringe menopausal symptoms, which many women have sleep disturbance, maybe related to hot flashes, maybe not. Um, things like joint pains, things like mood or anxiety or cognitive concerns. So for women who are less than age 60, and again, remember, we just talked about these are generally women at the menopause transition. So I would say 100% of them are less than age 60 and less than 10 years since the menopause transition. We know that hormone therapy is by level one evidence which is you know, supported across the board by all medical societies. Uh, we know that hormone therapy is uh, FDA approved for prevention of osteoporosis. And we know from the Women's Health Initiative study, 27,000 women studied from the age of 50 to 79, that with these, that hormone therapy at standard doses also reduces the risk of hip, spine, and, and non-vertebral uh, fractures. So, so again, when we're trying to offset bone loss, hormone therapy for the right person at the right time with the right doses without any contraindications, uh, and we can review those separately, really, that is something that I counsel on because, again, it's going to help with their symptoms, their outward symptoms, and it's going to help with their inward symptoms, which is their bones, which they didn't feel, but they're coming to me for anyway. Um, and so that is something that's really important. We know that calcium, as we go through menopause, it's like a double hit. We actually have more urinary calcium that's excreted because we're upticking the osteoclast, which we're breaking down more bones. And so when we do break down more bone, more of that calcium gets leached out into the urine, which is you know not fair. <laughs> so we need to be better about calcium intake. I would say also 75% of the women that I see are not taking in enough calcium. They did not know they needed enough that calcium. They say they're lactose intolerant, or they think that's going to cause them to increase their cholesterol or gain weight. There's so many calcium options now here in the United States that we have both dairy and non-dairy sources, as well as supplementation, which again is supplements to the diet. I really don't believe in 100% of supplementation for anything. Um, so we talk about those things. Vitamin D helps absorb calcium. And then, you know, the big E, the, the big exercise discussion. Let's talk about the calcium supplementation there, because it's it's become a little bit fraught with controversy over the years. and the research, you know, it, it, just you tell me like what you think about calcium supplementation, because you're hearing this like heart disease murmurs over here and kidney stones. And is, I think people have become a little afraid of calcium supplementations in some circles. So I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we think about supplementation, we first need to understand, so what is the recommended daily allowance? And remember that when we think about these things, um, you know, the recommended daily allowance is generally set by, you know, government agencies, the institutes of medicine, uh, etc. And, and these are, you know, for the community dwelling average, you know, individual, whoever that is. And generally what's recommended for, you know, postmenopausal females is 1200 milligrams of elemental calcium daily. So um, so when we think about that, there's lots of ways we can get that. Generally, you need to educate yourself and a lot of clinicians should be able to educate you on calcium intake. Um, there's some calculators that are freely available to understand how much calcium is in a glass of milk. So generally, like a glass of dairy milk, as well as even non-dairy milk, fortified milk, which, whether that be almond milk, soy milk, oat milk, um, things like that, there's generally anywhere from 300 to 450, even upwards milligrams of calcium for an eight ounce glass of milk. Not, not so my patients say, oh, I just like put a tablespoon in my coffee. Well, that's not going to get you where you need to go. Um, and so, so generally, when you take a dietary inventory and say, okay, what are you doing for calcium? And I always say, you know, calcium has a lot of, most calcium rich foods also have a lot of good protein, which is, we know that that is very important for bone health as well as maintaining muscle mass as well as weight management. So getting enough calcium gives you generally food fortified foods generally gives you enough protein as well. And also important calories that we need for the day. And then in terms of supplementation, so whatever you need to make up in supplementation, whether you need 1200 milligrams, or you need more because you have malabsorptive issues, or you need a certain type of calcium, because as you mentioned, some calcium contributes to kidney stones. And we know that excessive calcium supplementation leads to things like kidney stones, leads to things like constipation. I mean, so many women I see, we have to battle these two things. So we work on treating both uh, together. Um, so, you know, again, calcium supplementation at the right doses 
And many, many studies, including many meta-analysis going back to the early 2000s, we know that appropriate calcium doses, and if that includes supplementation, really offsets bone loss, maintains bone marrow density. It's very hard to study fracture risk, but there has been some meta-analysis showing that appropriate calcium supplementation with at least 1,000 milligrams of calcium uh, slightly decreased the risk of all-cause fractures um, in postmenopausal women. We know from the Women's Health Initiative study, again, the largest study that we have had some definitely has some misgivings, but you know, it did help us in, in osteoporosis to really point to the fact that women who took uh, 1200 milligrams of calcium uh, reduced their risk of osteoporosis related fractures more than women who took less calcium. So we know that calcium helps the medications we use for osteoporosis work better as well, because again, it mineralizes bone. And now that you're all experts on bone metabolism, you know, when we, when we break down bone or we uh, remodel, we lose the calciums that we need to replace when we're going to form that new strong bone. So very important. 99% of our calcium is stored in the skeleton. And we need that for other things, like I mentioned as well, cardiovascular, nerve conduction, uh, et cetera. Um, so again, calcium, we can't just say not important or so controversial, controversial. Where the controversy comes is that when people take excessive amounts of calcium, and we know that calcium supplementation likely increases the blood calcium sort of more dramatically, there's been some very few studies looking at calcium, excessive calcium supplementation causing cardiovascular uh, calcification. Uh, we're now talking more about cardiovascular calcification because we can study that with something called a calcium score in the heart, but that doesn't necessarily mean that calcium and supplements are related to coronary cal cal uh, calcification. And that was really one small study that showed that many of the, the lion's share of the research and really do not show that calcium at appropriate doses cause coronary artery calcification. So it's important not to stop your calcium. We can treat both cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis because both, you know, are equally and uh, equally important. So if I can boil that down very succinctly for people, um, you should maybe do a few days of assessment of what your calcium intake looks like. Get an, get an idea. You know, there are many different food things that you can plug in what you're eating and we'll tell, it will break it down. And then make sure that you cover your bases by getting up to that 1200 number. Is that fair? That is fair. And for some women, they need more. Some women might need, you know, less if they're saying, okay, get so constipated with calcium, you know, a thousand to 1200. Some women with malabsorptive things like I see a lot of women with celiac, with uh, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or women who've undergone gastric bypass, they need even more closer to like 1500 uh, sometimes. And so, um, cause we know most of the calcium is absorbed in the small intestine. So, um, so again, and then women who are on steroids, actually even glucocorticoids, we know that unfortunately that shuts down sort of the barrier of absorption too. So they might need more calcium. So again, that's where it comes, like it's a little bit of a nuanced discussion and it really is individualized, you know, um, you know, some women have, you know, lactose intolerant. Okay, well, that doesn't mean no milk, right? There's so many good, you know, options now that we have for fortification. Excellent. Moving on to sort of a broader picture of diet. I mean, I guess I should ask about supplementation with vitamin D before we do that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, vitamin D is sort of the golden child of supplements at the moment. So I, lots of people take it for lots of different reasons. Uh, do you recommend just a, supplementing with that as a matter of course? Yeah, so you're you're absolutely right. I mean, vitamin D. I mean, we talked about this a little too. Is that never when you know, right? No supplement is is you know going to become like the end all be all of any treatment or you know any lifestyle. So vitamin D, you know, um, you know, has been studied many different ways. And and what we what we know again from you know recommended daily allowances for postmenopausal women, you know, around eight hundred to a thousand international units of vitamin D three, which seems to be a better absorbed than potentially vitamin. D2, um, if you're not deficient, um, seems to be appropriate. How do we know you're not deficient? Generally, most you know bone health specialists as well as internist gynecologists should be checking a vitamin D, a 25 hydroxy vitamin D level, which tells us sort of your what the sort of your the vitamin D status is in your in your body and bones. And generally, you know, deficiencies less than either 20 to 30, depending on who you're asking. Generally, vitamin D levels between 40 and 60 to maybe 70 nanograms per milliliter is what's recommended. Excessive vitamin D can just cause sometimes actually calcium to be excessively high. We know vitamin D is also stored in fat tissues. 
you know, so we don't need ton, whopping doses of vitamin D. Uh, we know vitamin D might help, you know, with some immune status. And we know that from, you know, the, from the, the COVID pandemic. Um, but we, we've looked at large scale studies, like such as the vital study, which was out of Harvard, you know, routine doses of 2000 international units of vitamin D3 did not reduce the risk of, you know, all cause fractures. It also didn't reduce the risk of all cause mortality or cancer uh, or cancers. And so again, pointing to the fact that one supplement isn't going to do everything for you. I mean, some women need 800, some women need 1,000, some women need 5,000. If you're deficient, we need to sort of fill that tank back up. And so you maintain you know, vitamin D is a pro-hormone. It is absorbed in the skin, but many of us don't live live in colder latitudes or are not outside uh, getting vitamin D every single day or putting on sunscreen with UVA and UVB. So again, most vitamin D can be supplemented. Check your supplements. A lot of multivitamins include vitamin D. Uh, a lot of, um, you know, calcium supplements include vitamin D. So sometimes you might be getting what you already need without taking anything supplemental. But again, an individualized look at that blood level. And you have to be consistent with calcium and vitamin D. You know, I have patients who say, oh, you know, yeah, that one day when I'm in my car, I like pop the vitamins that are there or like, oh, I forget because like I'm so tired at the end of the night, I fall into bed. Well, you need to be consistent with the supplements too. That's really, really important. Excellent. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. So now let's talk about your diet more broadly. Um, You know, you mentioned the importance of protein. I've been, I'm all, I got to tell you, I'm very concerned about my audience who has been constantly dieting throughout their whole life. And it's probably, you know, and I hear so many people restricting, restricting, restricting. And I read some of the literature on keto and low carb and like what the relationship of low energy availability to bones. And I just find it concerning. And I'm, I'm wondering what your experience is. Yeah. So my experience, you know, with relatively energy uh, deficiency syndrome in sport or um, the female athlete triad and, um, and low energy availability, you know, is again, a constellation of, you know, menstrual irregularity, amenorrhea uh, for bone health, particularly, they usually come to me for that or, are things like um, stress fractures, mm-hmm. you know, osteoporosis, a poor healing. Again, when we think about stress fractures, generally stress fractures of like the tibial plateau, the femoral neck, um, ankle, uh, recurrent uh, feet, you know, metatarsal fractures, things like that. Um, So yes, I mean, generally, those are my, you know, premenopausal women, but sometimes also, you know, postmenopausal women. Um, And and there's, you know, again, this is sort of a subset of sports medicine more than, you know, routine gynecology and internal medicine, which I think is um, unfortunate, because I think many of us, you know, in the in the general population, see these women and are not sure how to, you know, treat them. This is generally a very complex interplay of specialists, right? We need both gynecologists, we need nutritionists, we need sports medicine uh, folks. Um, a lot of these times, these people are high, you know, elite athletes or high performing athletes. I see a lot of collegiate athletes as well, sometimes with the these um, these symptoms. So again, it's working on nutrition, getting adequate caloric intake to oftentimes, rest- and fat intake to often restore the menstrual cycle, uh, things like 
you know, working on training. So cross training versus uh, so much running or aerobic training uh, that needs to be done. Uh, again, working with a trainer, that is not me, but working with someone who can uh, help help with them with that. Um, restoring menses, this is also a whole like hour long conversation, but we know that oral contraceptive pills are not generally recommended just to restore uh, menses. We know that that actually decreases the osteoblasts and decreases the IGF, which is a certain factor. I know I'm getting kind of nerdy and sciencey here, but, uh, and so we know that those generally are not the recommended treatment for someone with a low energy availability or female triad. And we should be using more things like transdermal estrogen and trying to uh, restore the menstrual cycle if we can. And then treating stress fractures and fractures it's again, cal uh, adequate calcium, vitamin D. And then sometimes some of these patients do end up going on osteoporosis related medications to boost or build up their bone mass. Um, also thinking about things like, again, how we train, uh, you know, return to run programs. Uh, this is this is a long process for a lot of these women. Well, and my audience is not is is older. I mean, there there are women who are in perimenopause or beyond. Many of them have IUDs. Many of them have periods that are all over the place. They are getting stress fractures. They are restricting. They are in LEA. They don't know that they're in LEA because LEA often mirrors what they're experiencing in perimenopause, right? So, I mean, I find them an even more precarious group because mm -hmm. they are out doing, I just was at Ironman World Championships. I mean, yeah, I saw your a pictures. huge member of that field are 40 plus women. I'd say the vast majority of them. I, mm -hmm. we're, we're out there. I mean, even if they don't have pro contracts right. and um, I feel like they're slipping through the cracks in this conversation and it concerns mm -hmm. me. And, and it goes to the point that we talked about even from the outset that we're losing our bone mass. You no, know, just because you hit menopause, you know, the bone loss doesn't just like drop overnight, just like how people, you know, menopause isn't just a one day event, right? We're living in the menopausal years. So we know that, you know, FSH is starting to increase, estradiol is starting to go down. All these things are happening in the perimenopause. And then calcium is, you know, we're not thinking about calcium. And then look at those women in their 40s, right? They're multitasking like like amazing people, right? Like we, you know, they're, you know, they're mothers, they're community members, they're at working, they're you're doing all these things and they're exercising at the elite level. I mean, this is crazy. So again, appropriate fueling, thinking about hormonal health, thinking about calcium intake, all these things, very, very important. Vitamin D, um, building their bones, and then understanding a bone mineral density, um, also important as well, right? So um, maybe those people, if your their concern should be obtaining a DEXA, you know, early if, if they've had a stress fracture, or if they have a family history to understand what their bones look like. I think we don't have a lot of great answers, you know, in terms of pharmacology management. Again, like I mentioned, we kind of see the end of these things, um, you know, but we don't really know how to treat in the middle, except for again, calcium, vitamin D, know your risk. Um, and I, I think that we need more in this, more in this, you know, sports arena for, for women, because more women are contributing and continuing. I want to quickly double click on the stress fracture and stress reaction piece. If women are experiencing that, is that a red flag for bone health? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, stress fractures when I see is generally recurrent or stress reaction. Yes. I mean, these are, you know, generally maybe repetitive emotions or exercise or overstressing the bone in a certain way. Some of that, again, could be due to physiology, could be due to your hip axis length, could be due to your running pattern, could be due to your feet. I mean, we know that some people need, you know, specialized orthotics or need to, you know, strengthen certain areas, do, you know, quadricep training, do certain physical therapy to Oh, you know, not to overtrain or overstress. This isn't sort of the mainstay of people who train for marathons, triathlons, just like you do. So, you know, that's not so much my world, but yes, I mean, that means there's something going on, right? Like there, this is the end stage. Something is going on that we need to kind of back up and look at all these different pieces, nutrition, bone health, uh, hormonal, um, you know, mediations, all of these things. And let's talk about that exercise piece, which is very important. And last but not least here, because a lot of these women, you know, obviously they are running a marathon or they're doing all this thing. But my understanding is, you know, even though running is, quote unquote, impact, that does not necessarily protect you from these bone losses that we're talking about. Correct. I mean, we I hear a lot about multidirectional and strength training. Like, what does the exercise component look like when you're talking about that bone health piece? Mm-hmm. 
So again, you know, I'm trained as a medical doctor, as I, you know, what I've learned, you know, is basically self-taught or taught from, you know, physical therapists, trainers, people in the, you know, Pilates exercise world, um, books that I've read. Um, we don't get trained on this as medical doctors. That's why the prescription for exercise, when you go to maybe an endocrinologist or rheumatologist, many of these people are my close friends and colleagues or gynecologists. It's sort of like, well, like, you know, you know, you should just do some walking or you should lift some weights. But again, for many women, they're either, you know, you know, either doing a lot or they're not doing anything or they're just so confused and they're stuck in the middle. And so I see a lot of women who come to me with osteoporosis and now they're sort of walking on eggshells. They're like, can I even walk? What about skiing? What about rollerblading? You know, what about Zumba? What about my Pilates or yoga? So there's so many confusing mixed messages out there and disinformation. And I think it's because there's just let, it's very hard to study exercise. Um, and also that's not getting out into the medical community. So what we do know though, and again, again, from limited studies is that you really should write, there's many different options for exercise. So things like aerobic exercise, which is like you're running, which is cycling, which is, you know, classes, which is, you know, racket sports. Those are, you know, good for, you know, generally everything. I always say those are good for the brain, the heart, the bones, your mood, you know, all these things. So you're adding in those, you know, we know generally, again, what's recommended for the, from the powers that be for the average woman, 150 minutes of aerobic exercise weekly is what's recommended. We heard from the menopause conference that more like 200 minutes a week is uh, recommended for weight maintenance. My patients balk at that because that's an hour, five days a week. But, you know, that is, you know, most likely what is, you know, going to help us prevent, you know, number one, you know, weight gain and number two, help us, you know, build muscle and keep up our aerobic strength, which is good for cardiovascular bone and et cetera, probably breast health as well. We think about things like resistance exercise. Also, what does that even mean? You know, using your own body weight can be resistance. So things like yoga, Pilates, things like using resistance bands, using weights, but that is so individualized. You know, I can't tell an 80 year old to go lift a 10 pound weight. She will look at me like, what, what, what she, you know, she is going to think about using resistance bands or working with a trainer, or I recommend some, you know, YouTube videos or personalized things that she can do versus a 50 year old woman. I say, there is no reason that you cannot lift a 10 pound weight or more depending on where you're, where you're starting from. Generally resistance exercises two times a week for at least 15 to 20 minutes doing a sort of probably a total body circuit is, is helpful. Again, maintaining muscle mass around uh, the bones as well as preventing fractures. So we know that when you strengthen your hip flexors and the muscles around your hips, that prevents falls that prevents muscle loss, which we think of as sarcopenia muscle loss with loss of muscle function. Um, so working on resistance exercise can help. And number one, again, that helps again with metabolic. We know that, you know, when women go through menopause, we're more of that, uh, you know, muscle tissue is getting converted to adipose or fat tissue causing insulin resistance. So the more resistance exercise, the more muscle mass you have, the stronger you're going to feel, the better you're going to feel, as well as we're going to have less insulin resistance and strengthen your bones. So those things are all kind of like a double you know, a, a really a double benefit. The one that gets forgotten about is posture and balance. I assess this in every single one of my patients, no matter if they're 35 or 85 and working on balance, making sure you can balance on one foot for 20 to 30 seconds. If that's too simple, challenge your balance. There's many other ways. Doing a sit to stand as many times as you can in a minute, doing a get up and go test for some women who again have maybe, uh, you know, are, are have more advanced osteoporosis or at high fall risk. And then again, working with allied, you know, health professionals, physical therapists, trainers, et cetera, that can help patients, you know, meet those goals consistently, right? So it's like doing it every day, doing it two to three times a week. So it seems like a burden, but, you know, if we can break it down to aerobic exercise with some resistance, with posture and balance, and some exercises include all of those things, um, at least consistently a couple times a week, that really does, you know, again, put women in a very good position and out of that fear-based, what do I do if I have osteoporosis or what can I do to, you know, offset bone loss and offset muscle loss? And by the way, you know, I want to offset, you know, weight gain and, and help my metabolism the best way that I can. Yeah. And, and this audience is not burdened by telling them to exercise, <laughs> you know, I mean, we have, we have a very active, active audience. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but play, it is not pause. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and they are they are very they're very active. I mean, it's interesting though because I had uh, Juliet Starrett on the show, and what, one of the things that she talked about, which is true, uh, you know, I there are 
there are people listening here who can run a marathon, but, you know, can't deadlift like whatever, or can deadlift 200 pounds, but can't stand on one leg and balance, you know? <laughs> and so I think that they're more in danger of getting imbalanced in one of those directions and not being more 360 degrees strong, you know, in, in a way that might help their bone health as well. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, right. I heard it from someone else and I love this phrase training for life. Right. So it is, it's like the balance piece is important because we all lose our proprioception. Medications change that muscle mass changes that just day-to-day fluid shifts can change that a posture again, not only affects, I mean, posture differences can sometimes be vertebral fractures or spine fractures where we, you know, have asymptomatic height loss. And that can be a sign of actually clinical osteoporosis. So again, measuring height is so important, but posture becomes important, not just for vanity's sake, but also that can contribute to like our lungs feeling compressed. So a lot of our organs, constipation, and then we fall more often if we're not looking in front of us, but looking down at our feet. So Again, all levels of age. And I, I think you're so right when you say this, your audience. I mean, it, it really should be looked at by decades or times in life, right? So we talked about peak bone mass and women should be talked about that in their 20s and 30s, you know, not just drinking soda and having supplements and smoking and, you know, trying to maintain a low body mass, but really, again, feeling strong through those years in our 30s and 40s, you know, reproductive years, okay, making sure that again, we're pregnant, lactating, we're getting enough calcium, vitamin D, continue to exercise, thinking about our period as sort of a vital sign, our menstrual cycle is a vital sign. Then looking to our 40s again, we're starting to hit the stride of perimenopause. And this is general, you know, I'm saying generally because we know perimenopause can start in our 30s and we know some women, you know, menopause doesn't, you know, their final menstrual period doesn't end until 55, but we know 95% of women are through, you know, have the menopause transition or 12 months without a period between 45 and 55. And then again, that menopause midlife period that we just talked about, really thinking about bone health and capturing what your bone health has been and what it's going to look like for the future. Because as we know from statistics time and time again, 40, 30 to 40% of women are living there, you know, or women are spending 30 to 40% of their lives in the postmenopausal years, right? Which we want to stay fracture free. Many of your patients like mine want to stay strong, independent, live independently, uh, and really understand their risk of certain conditions moving forward so they can live optimally. So I'd, I'd like to, you know, when before I hit record, you shared a story about a woman who sort of turned things around for herself. And I, I hear from so many women who are like, they even hear they have osteopenia and they're like, is that a slippery slope to osteoporosis? Is this done? I think we've explained that it's not. But I'd love for you to share that story about that woman. I think she was 58 even and mm-hmm. was able to help sort of her bone health. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, often, again, in my consultative practice, I see women with either menopausal symptoms um, or, you know, or bone loss or come to me, you know, wanting a DEXA scan or evaluation and understanding and treatment of, of that scan. And so, as I mentioned in the outset, you know, I, you know, see many women who are in that, you know, 50 to 60 year old category who have bone loss, whether they have osteoporosis, like the statistics I shared or osteopenia. And there are a lot of things that we can do. And so she, this one was 58. Um, she had never been counseled on anything. She had her first initial DEXA at 57 and had shown, you know, it showed osteoporosis, unlike, you know, many that we see. And she was a Caucasian thin female exerciser, thought that she was, you know, very, um, you know, educated about her health um, and, you know, very confused and upset by the diagnosis. And we talked about all the treatment options. Um, and, you know, again, she had, you know, symptoms of, you know, weight gain and sleeplessness, et cetera. And so, you know, try to low dose hormone therapy after counseling. And a year later did her DEXA scan and her bone mineral density is improved. Um, you know, when we think about hormone therapy, you know, we're not going to improve our DEXA 10 to 20%, like some of the medications might do, but offset the bone loss five to, we you know from the Women's Health Initiative study, five to 7% of bone loss can be prevented with standard doses of hormone therapy over, you know, three to five years. And her home, her bone mineral density improved, uh, both numbers in the spine and the hip. Um, again, we know she's, 58. So she's a relatively low risk for fracture. She's been working on her balance. Um, and we see changes and she got an appropriate calcium and really thoughtful more about that. And again, sleeping better, feeling better. You know, and I asked her, how are you sleeping? She said, oh, I sleep fine. I said, oh, well, last year you didn't. She said, I don't remember that. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing when people feel well, they're like, they don't remember. And I think, well, we take detailed notes and we remember. Um, but I, again, this is an example. It doesn't have to be earth shattering. These small changes can actually make a big difference, both internally as well as externally. 
And then those other medications, that's something that you would work with, like a Fosamax and all that. Those are medications you would work with your doctor, right? To Yeah. So those are right. So though there is a, I mean, that's a, yeah, we can come back and talk about all those. That is exciting. There, there is so many um, treatment options. This is what I do day in and day out, you know, for, for treatment of osteoporosis. Again, we're not doing a great job at identifying room at risk. And then we're not doing a great job, you know, for many reasons that both include medical factors as well as media factors and patient factors that it's, you know, diagnosing and then treating osteoporosis with women who are at high risk for fracture. Those have had fractures, those have teeth scores of minus 2.5 or lower. Um, so there are mainstay of medications that both prevent uh, osteo or sorry, prevent um, osteoporosis, then treat osteoporosis, both bone building medicines, which we call osteoanabolic medications, and then medicines that reduce bone loss called anti-resorptive medications, hormone therapy being one of them, raloxifene being some of them, uh, uh, do a V would be another one. And then other, um, or olendronate, bisphosphonates, IV options, et cetera. So that really also becomes like a nuanced individualized discussion, but we know for many women, these FDA approved safe and effective medications reduce fracture risk by, you know, 40 to up to even 80%, uh, depending on the treatment site and things. So again, really good options, both for prevention, uh, of, of fractures and then treatment of osteoporosis. And I want to drive home how important this all is, because I don't think it, it like people really don't understand. Like when you talk about breaking a hip, you're talking about a lot of people. That's the end of the line. Right. Like they don't recover and they die. Correct. I mean, what? what, you what does, yeah. Yeah. So again, we talked about osteoporosis related hip fractures, which I really feel like we failed women when I, when I see those. And, you know, generally those are happening in our women in our seventies and eighties. And remember 60% of women are living longer than 80. So these things are happening. You're actually more likely to have a hip fracture than you are. Your lifetime risk of the hip fracture is more uh, than breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and uterine cancer combined. So hip fractures are common and they are have a significant, significant morbidity and mortality. So we know from, you know, the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation, and they've looked at a lot of uh, data over the age of women over the age of 65 and Medicare data, 30% of women uh, will die within a year of having a hip fracture, both from the hip fracture itself and then from comorbidities they might've had beforehand or infection, blood clot. Um, and then 20% uh, will not live or walk independently again, which really is, again, changes the trajectory of your life and freedom. And a lot of women, when I seeing in their 70s days that is their goal their goal is to you know again live and and work a lot of these women are still working in their communities uh, and, and giving back in so many ways um independently and so we really need to think about again treating fractures from a holistic standpoint sure medications are important exercise is important fall risk is important um and and again uh really thinking about hip fractures is um life-changing as you mentioned well, I really appreciate your time, Christy. I think I feel like we've covered a lot of ground here. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to leave our audience with? Yeah, I think we have really gone from the beginnings of bone mass to uh, menopause, which I think we've really highlighted here, which I think is uh, just needs to be really, um, you know, really augmented in both the medical world, as well as, you know, patients understanding about you needing this, they don't just need their pap smears, and their cervical exams, and their mammograms every year, but we need to start moving beyond just like bikini medicine and thinking about, you know, bone health, which and muscle and fall risk and and things like that, that are going to really uh, impact our, our years in the postmenopause. Um, and, uh, I, I think, yeah, I just think this is such a great forum and I appreciate, uh, you opening it up to this topic. Okay. That's our show. And as promised, I would like to summarize a few of the points here at the bottom of this conversation, because we covered a lot of ground. If you are hearing my voice right now and you have not already, you need to do an assessment of your bone health and or fracture risk. There are online calculators you can use as a good starting point. I've checked them out. They're very useful. I'll put a link to those in the show notes. 
You can also get a DEXA scan to measure your bone density. You can find that at any local healthcare facility. I'll put a link to search for that in the show notes as well. Insurance may or may not cover it if you're under 65, but I looked that up. They are not very expensive. They average about $125 and your bone health is super, super important. There is a strong genetic component to osteoporosis. So knowing your family history, if possible, helps a lot. If you are at risk or have low bone density, definitely take a look at hormone therapy. Hormone therapy for menopause or hormone replacement therapy, HRT, MHT, whatever you call it, is FDA approved for the prevention of osteoporosis. If you are not a candidate for hormone therapy, no panic. There are other great options for you. We did not get into all of the pharmaceutical interventions because as she mentions in the show, that could be a whole separate show. And it's so individualized. It's something to work with with your healthcare provider, but there are many options. Please utilize them. Most women do not. And again, bone health is super important. Make sure you eat enough to fuel your activity. I have talked about low energy availability a billion times over the past three years. It's really important and many of us slip into it because we don't fuel enough for both our activity and our lives it sets the stage for bone loss. So make sure you eat enough and you get enough protein and carbohydrates. It's important. Speaking of nutrition, get at least 1200 milligrams of calcium. Try to get it from food first. There's tons of fortified foods out there. And then make up the difference if there is one with supplements. And you can take 800 to 1000 international units. I use a vitamin D3 as well to supplement your bone health. Perform regular resistance training. We talk all about that on this show and do some jumping, just 10 to 20 jumps a day. It doesn't have to be giant box jumps, just standing jumps is scientifically shown to help build bone. Again, you're really only as strong as your skeleton. So stay on top of building those bones. All right. So for next week, I sit down with Christine Yu, author of Up to Speed. And we sit down and dive into the state of research on menopausal women right now and why we're all so freaking confused half the time. It's a good one. So come on back for that. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause. And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.